This story really starts quite some time before this. In fact, I was stunned uh, about two weeks ago when Pastor Joplin preached a sermon about the sword of Goliath. God had already given me this message. I was studying on it. You see, about that time is where this message ties in. David uh, was running from Saul. Saul was after him. Saul wanted to kill him uh, because he knew that he was to take over his kingdom. Uh, but Saul really went crazy. And when David ran from him and picked up the sword at Nob, Saul followed him in there and slaughtered 85 priests, killed them. Why? Because one of them had given David the sword of Goliath. He hadn't done anything wrong. Didn't even know why David was there. And now this slaughter of the 85 priests. David went on and had to run from there. He was on the run. And in 1 Samuel, the 22nd chapter, verses 1 and 2, we see what, uh, what happened and what began to happen. It says in the first verse that David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam was about three or four miles outside of Bethlehem. Uh, had to have been a large cave. I think it was kind of a cave complex. Um, there was a lot of room there. And when his brothers uh, and all of his house heard it, they went down to him. So because that uh, Saul wanted to kill David, now his whole family is in danger and they're on, their, they're on the run for their lives. He got them there, actually sent them on into another land and made a deal with the king to protect them and they had to stay there. But it didn't stop there. Now David uh, has been uh, anointed king. He's not king and won't be for some time. But he's a known quantity. In other words, there are... Uh, men out there, uh, the whole nation of Israel knew who David was. He had killed Goliath. They sang songs about him. Uh, if you remember the last time I preached, he had a number one hit, you know, the song of David uh, at, for killing Goliath. And, and so these people knew who he was. What happened is in verse 2, and everyone who was distra in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So David got to the, uh, the cave of Adullam by himself. People began to hear where he was at. Here's the problem. Saul had gone crazy. He's, he's killing people. He slaughters 85 priests. And now people are scared and they're running for their life. Where do they go? To David. The people that were in distress, there would have been people that were afraid of Saul. He could come in and take whatever he wanted to, and he could slaughter people, and that's what he was doing. Those that were in debt, you see at this time, there weren't any bankruptcy laws. Now if you file bankruptcy, you can get protection from your creditors. You can potentially hang on to a home or things like that uh, and work your way out of it, restructure debt. You didn't restructure debt in this day. If you were in debt and you couldn't pay, you were enslaved. They sold off your children to slavery, your wife, whatever it took to gain back. And so those that were distressed began to go to David. Those that were in debt and couldn't pay their debts, um, they may have been demanded of them. There, there, it was a chaotic time, and people were running to David. Those that were bitter of soul, essentially outlaws, 
Some of them would have been political dissidents still running from Saul. Others were just outlaws. And they begin to show up. And next thing you know, David has 400 men and their families. A few thousand people suddenly are at this cave. Over time, a period of years, because this didn't just get over in a few months, the ranks swelled to over 600 people, 600 men and their families. And somewhere in this time frame, Uriah the Hittite shows up. This is where he would have been. This is where, it's not all recorded, but this is where he had to have come on the scene. Uriah was a Hittite. The Hittites were supposed to have been wiped out by the Israelites when they took the land. And the Israelites did not do that. They didn't wipe them all out. They would have been more or less a second-class citizen. And now not only is he that, but he's on the run. And when he joins David's uh, band of refugees running from society, this is where we find Uriah the Hittite. One thing, as Uriah joined this band, he was on a more level playing field than he had ever been. This would have been more opportunity than he had ever had. And what he learned was this. You can see it through the rest of his life. He learned discipline. He learned loyalty and integrity. And it served him well for the rest of his life. He also had to have converted to serve Jehovah. Because his name, Uriah, was not a Hittite name. It was a very Israelite name. If you go and look it up, the meaning of Uriah is, my light is Jehovah, evidence of a conversion. So now not only is he a part of King David to be King David, David's fighting force, but he's also accepted Jehovah as his God. He was a good soldier, a very good soldier. He rose through the ranks because of performance. He had to have proved himself. He didn't just show up and they said, oh, it's a Hittite, let's put him in charge. That's not how that worked. Well, that worked anyway, and certainly not for a second-class citizen. He would have had to have proved himself over and over He did. He became one of David's 37 most trusted, valiant men. Imagine this man shows up, grows through the ranks over a period of time, and becomes one of the 37 most valiant men. He became the inner circle of David's advisors. And why we know that, it's not actually said, but the fact that Uriah's house was within sight of the palace tells you that he was a very high-ranked officer. You don't just buy a piece of property next to the palace. It would have been controlled by David and his government. It would have either been granted uh, or, or assigned to Uriah and his family. It brings into light even more how sad it was that David uh, went after him, that took what he had. So here near the the palace, we find Uriah living literally within sight of it there in the city. Man, he's come a long way from Uriah, the Hittite outlaw. It's also several years 
have passed. He's become a valiant man. He's a disciplined man. He's very loyal. David gave him opportunity that he'd never had anywhere else. Never would have. And he's taken advantage of it. He's a man of integrity. He stands for what he believes. He also learned his craft. While he was near the top, one of the top 37, he wasn't the top soldier. And if you're the kind of man that Uriah was, you would aspire to reach the top, to be the best that you could be. And he hadn't reached that yet. In fact, he, he had been around it. He knew what it was. And he would have seen what it took to get there. To reach the top of his craft, you don't just snap your fingers, get in line, get the seniority and get it. It would take uh, something special, something extraordinary, something out of the ordinary to reach that next level. In fact, it's recorded what it did take to get to that level. Uh, in 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter, uh, verses 8 through 12, talk about the, three, the top three men in David's army, the mighty men. There was many more. It talks about all 37 of them, some of the amazing things. But I want to read to you what Uriah would have been striving for. These are the names of the mighty men who David had. Joshib Beshebeth, worked hard on that yesterday. A Tecmanite, he was chief of the three, the three top. He was the chief. He wielded his spear against 800 men who he killed at one time. Man, I'd be war you would be so wore out taking on 800 men because they didn't all just lay down and go kill me. They were fighting back. And yet God empowered him, a supernatural fight uh, that he won. Next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle. Get this. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. His hand literally cramped. The tendons and ligaments seized up and they had to pry the sword out of his hand when he was done. But God blessed that day. The Lord brought a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So it took an army of people to clean up the mess that he made that day. They did the easy part. They did the cleanup. But God took one man and he was number two in David's army. Number three was, and next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorites. And I told the first service, I'd like to belong to the Herorites, but on the, <laughs> I don't. So the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. Get this again. And the men, the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. Key thing, the Lord worked a great victory. The men made themselves available. They were valiant. They didn't run. And when they didn't, there was a great victory. Those were the contemporaries. That was the men that Uriah hung around. Those were the men that, that he idolized, looked up to, strove to be like. That's who Uriah was trying to be. 
Uriah had witnessed these God-given victories and much more. If you read about the great men of David, uh, that was the beginning of it. There's some incredible stories. I encourage you, uh, you probably haven't read it this week, so go read it again. It's really good. In the spring of the year, um, he's gone out to battle. His king has sent him. Now, they didn't just wake up uh, on the first day of spring and grab their spears and out the door they went. He was an officer in the army. There would have been uh, academies to run. There would have been administrative stuff to do, preparation, logistics, all the things that it takes to go to war. They had been preparing all year since the last battles that had been fought the year before. And so you can only imagine that this is his time of the year to shine. He's in battle. He's, now he's been pulled from his job. He's doing what his whole life work is about, and David suddenly called him home. It kind of puts into context when we understand that he refused to go home. You see, his integrity, his discipline, and his loyalty wouldn't allow him to go home. The battle was raging. The men who he had trained would be watching. There were people following him. Men and women. Outside those doors, the battle is raging. We're in a battle like never before. We're absolutely in the end times. I don't know when God's, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I hope it's today. I'm excited to go. But if it's not today, then soon. And men, you better be living in integrity, with discipline, and loyalty to what you believe. Too many aren't. Men lead from the front. And men, what we're talking about is spiritual warfare. We're talking about a fight that is fought on your knees and in your Bible. And if, you're not, if your family is not seeing you do those things, if your family's not well aware that's happening in your life, if you're leaving that up to your wife or your children or a Sunday school teacher or the pastor, your family's in trouble. Men, get in the battle. If you're doing it, do more of it. You can't do too much of it. We're in serious, serious times. The devil is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And men, you're the first line of defense for your family. You'll either lead or you'll see him slip away. Uriah was leading the front. He was a man that stood in his integrity. And I can tell you, it's a lot easier to let it slip away than it is to get it back. The best chance you'll ever have is to be out in front of leading your family. I can never encourage you enough to lead from the front with your family. Now, Uriah has been sent back to the battle and left to die. He wanted to be, he would have naturally wanted to be one of those top three, top tier men. He was near the top anyway. There wasn't a lot farther he could go. And yet he was left up to trying to do his best at the given time with what he was given. And now he's been sent into battle. He and his men died 
because nobody had their back. But you know the real reason Uriah died? You know, I, I work in the manufacturing world. And one of the things that often happens is something goes wrong. We scrap a large piece of material. costs the company a lot of money. And so what often is done is uh, you have to do a corrective action. You have to search and find what the root cause. It's not always shows up. So if you find the root cause and you correct it, then it will affect many other things in the right direction. What we find here is the root cause of why Uriah died. The reason Uriah died is because David sinned. It was sin. You see, Uriah would have gone to the battle when he was put where all the valiant men were in the toughest of the battles. That would have been what he was looking for. That would have been what he and his men wanted. Why? It's the best opportunity to share in a great victory. And in the past, everything they knew was God gave victory. His contemporaries, the men that are around him, had experienced that. Supernatural victories. Things that weren't human. They weren't normal. And when Uriah was put in the heat of the battle, he wouldn't have questioned, why did they put me here? He would have accepted and been cited and gone to it. That's why when the people drew back, we just read, that's when the valiant men went forward and they won the battle. But let me tell you something. When there's sin in the camp, God will not bless. He can't. It's outside of his character. And we need to take a look at ourselves. If we're not seeing the blessing, we better take, a, take stock. We better look at why are we not seeing that blessing. God couldn't bless. He was there for the wrong reason. He was being sent. He was innocent. He died and never knew what had happened behind him. It was not his fault, and yet he got hurt. Let me tell you something. Sin never only affects one person. It never only affects you. And this time, it cost Uriah his life. It not only cost Uriah his life, it cost many other men around him. When you read that story, we always talk about Uriah, but it wasn't just Uriah. It was the men around him that died too. See, he was leading a company more than likely, and when they pulled back, as I said, they would have gone forward. They wouldn't have backed up. They're a value men. They knew that God was going to give them the victory. But God couldn't bless today because there was sin in the camp. We've seen the same thing with Achan at the Ai when the Israel tried to take that small town. And they lost because he had stolen things and hidden in his tent. There was sin in the camp. The same thing applies right here in this church today. And if there is sin from the top to the bottom to the front to the back, God cannot bless in the ways that he wants to. It's up to you and I to search our hearts, to confess our sins, someone to another, and to get it right. Folks, we're, I'll just be honest with you. We're not seeing everything that we could see. Let's take stock. Let's look at ourselves. Men, let's start with us first. Women, let's look at ourselves our children are watching us, and they know a lot more than we think they do. You might say that this is, this is not right. It's not fair. Somebody ought to do something about it, and you're right. They should. 
God tells us how to handle it. In Romans 12, in the 19th verse, God said this, Beloved, when you're wronged, never avenge yourself. He didn't say sometimes don't, every now and then don't, specific times. He said never avenge yourselves. This has to be one of the hardest things not to do. When somebody passes me and cuts me off, I just want to fix it. I got a big truck. I know how. Right? But, but listen, that applies to everything in your life. I pulled that out because it's easy and it points at me. But it applies to every point in our life. Yeah, I said, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And he does it in his time, in his way, more perfectly than anyone ever could. You see, God didn't let David off the hook. He didn't get away with this. The child that he had impregnated Bathsheba with died. And God, through Nathan, the the, uh, prophet, told him that the sword would never leave his home, would never leave his family. And God was good to his word. Within two years, uh, one of his sons raped his half-sister and then hated her and wouldn't have anything to do with her. Her brother, full brother Absalom, hated his brother now and within a couple of years killed him, all under David's roof. Now David's exiled him and eventually lets him come back home. When he comes back home, Absalom begins to conspire to take the kingdom away from David. And at least twice he had sons that tried to Uh, take the kingdom, that there was a war, that that one time David was driven out of Jerusalem. And when he was driven out of Jerusalem, Absalom, his son, raped his concubines. I believe there was 10 of them there. It never, chaos never left David's home. He paid a horrible price for what he did here. Uriah was not the one that exacted it. He was gone. He'd gone on to his reward. He had served his king, he'd served his God, and his time was gone. Here's what God says for us to do with our enemies. Here's what God says. This is how he says to do it. It follows on in Romans 12 there, verses 20 and 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. I want to starve the dude. I want to throttle him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing By so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is absolutely, as God most generally does, opposite of how this world is set up. You see, it's ran by the prince of the power of the air, the devil. And he is contrary to anything God. Almost anything that this world would do, do the opposite. You'll follow God. But God was not done. David had committed a horrible crime. David was going to pay for years and years to go. But God, as so often he does, I would tell you, look at your own life. What the devil meant for evil, God will take it, begin to mold it, and make it good. And the baby died, the son died of David and Bathsheba. But God blessed them. 
and gave them other sons. And one of them was Solomon. He later became one of the greatest kings of all time. And yet, he failed later. One of the things that David did, I love this about David, because you see it often, he was confronted with his sin. And when he was confronted with it, he immediately admitted it. He didn't try to continue on and hide it. He could have killed many other people and tried to stop it when Nathan, the prophet, confronted him. He could have killed Nathan and tried to shut him up. But instead, he realized that God was in it. And he admitted it and begged for forgiveness. And out of that came, he wrote Psalm 51. If you haven't read Psalm 51, more reading assignment. Go and read it. Uh, we sing a psalm of Psalm 51 here. I believe it's going to be released in another couple of weeks. But uh, it, it is David realized, admitted, one of the great traits of David, one thing that we should learn from him. Don't do the wrong thing. When you do, admit it. Come clean. Beg for forgiveness. Go to God. He gives forgiveness. As I was saying just a minute ago, God takes some of the worst things that we've ever done, some of the worst things in our life, and he turns them for good. And that's what he did here. Bathsheba had other children. She had Solomon. And God began to use that lineage. And you can follow that lineage directly a thousand years. I believe it's about 14 generations to a manger on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And Jesus Christ was born. A direct descendant of some of the worst sin ever. One of the biggest blunders of David's life. In fact, it was the biggest blunder. But Jesus was born. He was sent to save the world. But from the beginning, Satan was after him. Herod tried to kill him. His family had to run. The world hated him. They despised him. They reviled him. And when given the opportunity, they spit on him. Religious leaders rejected Jesus. They conspired against him. A lot of their time during that period was spent trying to figure out how to trip him up. When they got a hold of him, they plucked out his beard. They beat him, mocked, and jeered him. They put a crown of thorns on his head, pushed in until the blood ran down. They beat him, beat him mercilessly. And they hung him on a cross and they killed him. And he deserved none of it. He had done nothing wrong. Familiar story. He had done absolutely nothing wrong. He came to save the world and the world killed him. He did it to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. Jesus had discipline, loyalty, and integrity. Never broke those.
In Isaiah 53 and 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Because Jesus died on the tree, you and I can live. Uriah never had that opportunity. One thing I can say, though, unlike Uriah, Jesus didn't stay dead. He died, went into Hades, and defeated death, hell, and the grave. Took the keys so that you and I could live eternal life with him. He rose again on the third day. And he stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I. You see, you and I are no better than King David when he killed Uriah. Our sins killed Jesus. Our sins nailed him to the cross. He didn't deserve it. We earned it. He paid the price.